You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Hey man, and good morning to 10 o'clock. Are you comfortable this morning? Does everybody feel okay? You're comfortable? Okay, if you're under the age of 30, do you mind standing for just a second so you're under the age of 30? Okay, under the age of 30. Man, and I would be seated right now also, of course, if I was seated. Um, what about 30 of y'all? I'm giving the, the senior adults a discount here on this. Maybe a third of you who have like all the strength in the world to make it from where you're seated to the bald spot right up here. Just to come, I'm not speaking of you, sir. I'm talking about this whole, this area right here. <laughs> Just to come fill this in. So maybe 30 of y'all start making your move right now. There you go. Thank you. I see you moving in the back. The buses will wait. Awesome. More of y'all. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Welcome to the promised land here at the front. <laughs> also known as the spit zone. Okay, that was 12, so I need about, there you go. Okay, thank you. More of y'all. Three ladies standing up. Y'all, yeah, come stand out here. That'd be great. Whole family coming forward. Great. Sorry, I just got called out, didn't y'all? Man, that just looks so much better. Man, thank God for those on the age of, not just they can walk up to the front, but that we have a Congregation of some young adults. That's awesome. Okay, you can be you can be seated now. And just I don't know, little public service announcement. This is always open right up here. If you want to make your way here, I know some of y'all come to the ten ten gathering, which actually starts at ten o'clock. And sometimes you're like, man, I wonder if we should go to the front. Even if you make it to the ten ten gathering, you're welcome to come sit up here at, at the front. We begin a new series today uh, called Enough. And I'm so excited that we're walking through the book of Colossians together. And that's an operative word, together, this summer. In fact, if you want to go and get get to the book of Colossians, that'd be great. Colossians is in the New Testament. It's the 12th book in. If you've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you have Acts and Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Um, I learned that as a kid, General Electric Power Company. So get to to Colossians there, the the last one in in that foursome. And I'd encourage you to maybe put your ribbon, if you have a, a ribbon in your Bible, maybe put your ribbon there in Colossians or a piece of paper or mark that on your device because this is where we'll be for the entirety of, of this summer, just walking verse by verse to the book of Colossians, growing together in the knowledge of, of God. So we're in the book of Colossians. Colossians is different than many other books that Paul writes. In fact, in other books, Paul would usually write to the church when he saw a problem in the church. Uh, the church of Corinth, when he wrote First and Second Corinthians, the church of Corinth, they, they, had, they had gone off to the left. They, they had sexual immorality. They had no sexual ethics. They had no constraints when it came to alcohol, to drinking, to, to eating. They were progressive in that they thought that they could progress right past what they had already learned about the fundamental elements of God. The church of Galatia, it went off to the right. They had become more conservative than God. They were trying to conserve the old ways of the law. They were becoming Jewish Christian nationalists, and they were making people add things to their faith. In other words, the church of Corinth, they were putting 
rainbow bumper stickers on the back of their camels, but those in Galatia were putting Make Galatia Great Again bumper stickers on the back of, of their camels. And what Paul is trying to do is like, no, no, get back on the road of Christ. Get back on the way of Christ. But that's not the case in Colossae. He was not concerned about the church. He was concerned about the culture around the church and concerned that the church might begin to follow the culture. I think that's where we are here at Highland. We're a healthy church. And I don't say that for us to get puffed up with pride because if we get puffed up with pride that we have a healthy church, we're no longer a healthy church. I, I think from my perspective, my vantage point, we're, we're a healthy church. We're, we're in a good place. And for this season, I don't see our battles happening among us but I do see, and I'm afraid that there's a temptation in us to allow the culture, the philosophies of the culture, the movements of the culture, the popular opinions of the culture to start seeping in and influencing us as a church when it should be the church influencing the culture. So let me work backward today and give you two sweeping themes of Colossians. This way, for the remainder of the summer, you can start seeing these themes show up in all of the verses, all of the chapters. Here's the first major theme we see in the book of Colossians. Jesus isn't just one more thing to be worshipped and adored. He is the only one to be worshipped and adored. The culture in that day um, viewed gods, small g gods, like we view Facebook friends and Instagram followers, the more the merrier. They were polytheistic. Theo, meaning God. Poly, meaning many. And so the culture had a God for, for everything. And what Paul is going to do, he's going to come and write to the church of Colossae just as if he was writing to Highland today. And he was gonna, he's going to exalt Jesus. Paul is going to isolate Jesus as the sole Lord, the only one who is worthy of worship and adoration. And that's really important for us to know Highland. Because Jesus isn't just one more element of our life. Jesus isn't just some portion of our lives. He is our life. Second thing we will see in this, in this book, the remainder of the summer, is that Jesus transforms all things. That's the second major theme of the book of Colossians. Since Christ is supreme, he is unmatched, he is preeminent, he is exalted, and that same Christ resides inside of us, that should change everything. We are transformed because we have this preeminent Christ living in us, residing in us. We'll get to that later on, but that's Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, that we have Christ in us, the fullness of Christ in us. Therefore, we should be transformed. What does he transform? Well, Colossians is going to show us this summer. He transforms our thinking, our character, our behavior. Listen, our homes and our relationships. We will see how all those things are transformed because of the preeminent Christ taking up residence in his people. We're going to see how all those things are transformed these next 11 weeks. So let's jump in. The beginning of Colossians, a good place to start. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's stop right there. Paul's in prison. He's in prison in Rome as he is writing this letter to the church at Colossae. Paul has not been there before. He does not really necessarily know these people personally. 
But the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, has instructed Paul to write this letter to the church there at Colossae. And so he's in prison writing from Rome. He identifies himself here as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In other words, no one signs up to be an apostle. Uh, No one is able just to name themselves as an apostle. Paul is saying here, this is not some self-proclaimed title. It is by God's will that I am a sent person. That's all that apostle means. I am a sent person, sent from God. He's going to write this letter to Epaphras. We'll see him mentioned later on in chapter 1, verse 7. He's also mentioned later on in chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, he's the pastor. He's the, the spiritual leader of the church at Colossae. And he's actually in Rome right now getting this letter from Paul. Remember, Paul is in prison. Really, it's more like he's under house arrest. The praetorium guard is watching over him. He's not allowed to leave. But there are people who are able to come and to see him. And so Epaphras, the, the pastor of the church in Colossae, he comes to Rome and Paul hands him this, this letter. And so the letter is, is given to Epaphras, but it's actually read aloud by Tychicus. Tychicus will stand in front of the church. We'll see this later in chapter 4, verse 7. And he will read this letter to the church of Colossae, just to give you a little context there. But it also says here that it comes from Timothy, our brother. You see that in verse 1? From Timothy, our, our brother, the end of verse 1. There's two options here. Either Timothy was in Rome with Paul, and so Paul was writing this letter as carried along by the Holy Spirit, and Timothy was there with him. Or in this letter, Paul is trying to esteem, if you will, or lift up Timothy as kind of the new spiritual leader of the known Christian world. In other words, Paul might be saying here in this letter that Timothy is going to be the next Paul. I personally think that, not that it matters at all, but I personally think that that's the situation here. Not that Timothy is in Rome with, with Paul, but that Paul wanted to include the leadership, or if you will, the spiritual authority of Timothy, who's going to be, raising, be, will be rising up in the ranks to be raised up to be one of the new leaders within, again, the known Christian world at that time. He writes it, what does it say here in verse 2? To the saints. Christian, that's you. And so this letter is reserved for you. It's an inside letter, if you will. It's not an open letter to anybody. It's an inside word to the Christians. Now, non-believers can read this, but it is written to those who are saints in Christ Jesus. He also says to the faithful brothers. Um, the word brothers there is adelphia in, in Greek, and it's a plural word. And in the New Testament context, it means brothers and sisters or families. But the translators of the ESV, that's the translation I'm reading from and, and preaching from, they went with the closest translation here, which is brothers. But it was written to the church. It was written to brothers and sisters. That later on in chapter 4, verse 15, Paul actually says something specifically to Nympha and the church that meets inside of her house. And so Paul wasn't skipping an entire gender here in writing this letter. In fact, the operative word here isn't brothers in verse 2. It's the word faithful. This church was faithful to Christ, faithful to the gospel, faithful to the mission, faithful to one another, faithful to the word of God that's been passed along to them. Then it says here to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ. That phrase is used 190 times in the New Testament to designate followers of Christ. In fact, Paul will use it 154 times in his letters alone. The word Christian is only used three times in all the New Testament. But 190 times, you, Christians, you are defined by this term, those who are in Christ. So important for you to know that if you're a Christian, it means that you are in Christ. Christ. And that has remarkable implications to to the way we suffer, to our financial giving, to the way we treat one another, to to our speech, to eternity, that we are people who are in Christ Jesus. That's a better term for you than Christian. You are people who are in 
Christ. Now, saints, we will still struggle with sin, but we won't forever. We'll be saints forever, but we won't sin forever. Our identity is not that we are sinners. Our identity is that we are saints. Sin may be our struggle, but our identity is that we are the people who are in Christ. And then Paul says something that sounds probably very familiar to you. End of verse 2, grace and peace. And every time Paul uses those words, and he does often, I think almost every time in his letters to the churches, they're always in that order. That's the normal order for these two words, grace and peace. Um, Charis, key, arena. Charis, key, arena. Grace and peace. And I believe that they were written very specifically in that order purposely by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you never have peace until you first receive Christ's grace. So if you're here today and you don't have peace with God or you don't have peace with others, you don't have peace in your heart, you don't have peace with your past, first, in order for you to have peace, you'll first need to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. So now we're going to eavesdrop on a prayer of, of Paul. We're going to find out how he prays. And we're going to learn some great things about prayer in our own lives as well. Some great things about prayer ourselves. And I bet that something we all have in common in this room today and watching online today is that all of us could do a little bit better in our prayer lives. So let's read Colossians chapter 1, beginning of verse 3. I'll read the bulk of this. We'll go back and revisit it. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned from Epaphras, here's our pastor, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us, we've heard about this, your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's look, first of all, at the theological elements, if you will, of this passage, this eavesdropping of a prayer life that we're hearing from, from the Apostle Paul. Number one, we see this internal faith. Paul speaks of an internal faith. This is in verse four, if you want to look back there. Verse four, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, not your faith in baptism or your faith in goodness, just for goodness sake, not faith in relationships that you might have with other Christians, not faith in, in religion. He's talking about a faith in Christ Jesus. We live in a world today that seems to be so much more concerned about the sincerity of faith than it is the object of our faith. Therefore, we say things like, well, they're such good people. They're so sincere. Those people are so kind. Let me just say that goodness and sincerity and kindness are all good, but they do not save. My son Caleb was, was little and he got in trouble, which was very frequent. And he knew he was in trouble. 
when he was a three or four year old, he would stand really still and close his eyes. Because in his mind, if he couldn't see us, we couldn't see him. He had this very sincere faith that if his eyes were closed, he was very sincere in this, if my eyes were closed, my, my dad can't get me, I'm not going to get in trouble. But you need to understand something, that sincerity of his faith did not save him from the belt. He still got in trouble. I knew where he was. I knew where to, to find him. I can see him. So if you have sincere faith in anything outside of Christ Jesus, you sincerely have no hope at all. Faith must be in the person and the work of Christ Jesus on the cross, or else it is not a saving faith, no matter how sincere your faith may be. Secondly, Paul speaks of an eternal hope. See this in verse 5. Because of the hope laid out for you in heaven... That is, Christians, we begin, if you will, with the end in mind. Our, our lives as Christians, we look at life forward, not life backward. We, we live with this promise that one day death will end and wars will cease and school shootings will cease and stop and all nations and all races and all ethnicities will be welcomed joyfully into the kingdom of God. And there, there will be joy and love and peace and healing. So we pray like Jesus, God, may your kingdom come to earth. Look around us today. We don't want the culture to go up. We want the kingdom to come down. You see, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is for this world that the king may come and his kingdom principles may come to earth. So we have this internal faith, this, this eternal hope, and now we have this external, if you will, love. We see it in verse four, first of all. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints. We see it again down in, down in verse eight when, when, when Paul was, was speaking of Epaphras, the, the faithful pastor. He is a faithful minister of the gospel in the verse seven on your behalf, verse eight. And he has made known to us, we have heard about your love in the Spirit. So ultimately, love is the mark of a true Christian. In fact, Jesus said you can summarize all of the Old Testament really with this one word, love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor just like you love yourself. Love God and love others. Love is the way that demonstrates, Highland, that we are true believers in Christ Jesus. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives us this evidence of his residence by love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Ultimately, the mark of a Christian having love is an, an, a supernatural love. It's a divine love. Because it's a love that is given to us, if you will, a Trinitarian love. The love that the Father has for the Son and for the Spirit. The love the Son has for the Father and the Spirit. The love the Spirit has for the Father and the Son. That love is now in in us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It is placed in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, we now have access to this divine love in which we can love others. You probably have heard Paul talk about these three things a lot. Faith, hope, and love. In fact, in all the books that he wrote in, in the New Testament, all the 13 letters of, of his, uh, 13 letters in the New Testament that he wrote, he mentions all three of those words in every single letter. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these by far is love. So there's some theological elements that we see in this prayer life of, of Paul. But let's get practical now. We've looked at theological things. Let's look at practical things. Let's see how we can grow in prayer. What does it look like for you and I to be growing in prayer? Again, I think it can be said of all of us in this room, we could do better in our prayer lives. First thing, when praying, thank God 
for others. Look at verse three. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. It's good for you and I to thank people when they've expressed goodness toward us or they have provided for us in some way or they've been encouraging to us. It is good to thank people, of course, who have invested in us, again, provided, encouraged us. It's good to thank people who have been a model in the faith for us. But I'm saying right here, grow in your prayer life by acknowledging that it's God's provision, ultimately, that is behind every person who has ever done good to you. One way to pray is to thank God for others. It goes a long way for you to express your gratitude to someone else for their lives, but it may go, let me just tell you this, it may go a longer way for you to express to God that you see his kindness in other people, his generosity in other people, his goodness in others around you, in your family, your friends, the, the church community, spiritual investors. Secondly, pray for others. We see this again in, in, in verse three. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Jump down to verse nine. It's much the same thing. And so from the, the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and, and understanding. One of the greatest things you will hear this week, one of the greatest things you will hear this week is when someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm praying for you. That means the world to us. When someone comes to you and says, I just want you to know I've been praying for you. The shortest distance between two people is prayer. I mean, Paul is in a prison in Rome, Italy. He is writing to Colossae, which is in southwest Turkey today. It's 1,200 miles, but he is praying for them. Well, what connects them is prayer. God closes distance when we pray. I guess I say that first for some of you who geographically are separated from your family or your close friends or, or your loved ones. I may say that first today because as we pray for missionaries or as we pray for the persecuted church around the world, it is God who closes the gap of geographical separation when we pray. But also pray for those around you. Pray for those who are, who are near you. Pray for your friends, for your family, your coworkers, your, your neighbors. Here's what happens. You can write this down. When you pray for people, it guards against three things, jealousy, self-centeredness, and isolation. When we learn to pray for others, those three things will begin to be pushed away in our lives, and all of us feel those things often. Jealousy, self-centeredness, and a sense of isolation, especially the past two years. And Paul had every reason to be jealous I mean, he is separated from his, from his spiritual family. He's in prison. Other people are staying in their homes. He's in prison. He's under house arrest. Paul had every reason to be jealous, every reason to be self-centered, every reason to feel isolated. Prayer for others takes away those things. It allows us to pray for blessings for others. It allows us to celebrate when God has blessed other people around us. It helps us to move out of that belly button gazing when all we're doing is just looking at our own lives, our own world, our own circumstance. It moves us away from isolation and reminds us of the body of Christ around the world to which we belong. Thirdly, practical points in prayer. Pray for others to be encouraged. Look at verse five and verse six with me. Because the hope laid up for you in heaven, that's encouraging, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, that is the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, here's the encouraging part, as it also does among you. 
Since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Jump down to verse 10 again. In fact, let's read verse 10 through to verse 12. This is a prayer that is so encouraging. It has to be so encouraging to the church there, beginning in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. How encouraging to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Can you imagine Tychicus standing up at this church at Colossae and all the brothers and sisters in Christ there at Colossae, they're hearing this prayer that the Apostle Paul has for them. This prayer is so encouraging to the church there at Colossae. Let me just tell you, there is no such thing as an over-encouraged Christian. We all need to be encouraged. And we pray for another. We pray for others to be encouraged. So today, pray for Harris Creek. Today, pray for Antioch. Pray, pray for Greater New Light. Pray for Second Missionary Baptist. Pray for Primary Iglesia Bautista, that they'd be encouraged today. And when we pray for our church family, the Highland family, let's pray for one another to be encouraged. What does that do? It builds hope for our future. It builds gospel momentum for the days ahead. But don't just hear what Paul says. Hear what Paul does right here. In his prayers, he's encouraging others, specifically the church. He is telling them, did you see this? I hear that you're growing. I hear that you're increasing. I hear these great reports about you. I hear the fruitfulness of your church. I love you guys. And you just need to know, Highland, when I talk about you, I love it when people say, tell me about your church. I usually say, how much time do you have? They're the most Christ-like people I've ever been around in the entirety of my life. I just got back from Cuba yesterday. I was in Cuba with, with Pastor Jared and with Zach Elkins, and we were with a group of pastors. We were meeting with them, preparing for, for a mission trip, mission team from our church to go there next year. And we had a lot of meals and, and several hours of meetings because there was translation that we had to go through every time we were meeting with them or eating with them. And often the pastors would ask me, tell me about your church at Highland. And I'd say, oh, they're so generous. They're so faithful. They remind me of Christ. There's, there's great to be around because I see the presence of Christ in them. Some of the most selfless people I know. By the way, you do know that that brings health to this church, don't you? When you live a life of Christ-likeness, there's three things that brings health to a church. The presence of God, first and foremost. Secondly, the preaching of God's word and worship that is steeped in Scripture. You know the third thing? You. You reflecting the character of Christ, you being filled with, with the love of Christ, godly behavior. And when all three of those things are firing on all cylinders, we begin to carry the fragrance of Christ in a world that smells like death. I also like to say that you're a fun group and a diverse group. That there's 40, when I said that to the pastors of Cuba, uh, the Cuban pastors, that we have 41 national, to a communist country where people don't come and go, that we have 41 nationalities within this Highland Church family represented by the 41 flags surrounding this life center, they were overwhelmed. I, I say that this church has, has rich people and, and, and poor people. It has city people and rural folk. It has some exuberant people and some who just aren't as exuberant. <laughs> we have young, we have, we have old, and by the way, that probably is my favorite diversity of this church, that we have young and old here. You know, young people 
in a church are like the, the, the sails, right? They, they, they fill the, the wind fills up the, the sails. The older people in the church are like the rudder. But if the church was just filled with rudders, we would go nowhere. <laughs> We'd be in a straight line going nowhere. But if the church is only filled with youth and only filled with, with young people and young singles and younger people that filled the wind of the sails, we'd be going 100 miles an hour straight toward the rocks. We need both. We need to pray for one another to be encouraged. Fourthly and lastly, here's a practical way to pray as we eavesdrop into the prayer life of Paul. Pray for your leaders. This honors them. Look at verse 7 with me. If your Bible's still open, I hope. Paul is going to build up Epaphras, the, the pastor there at Colossae. Just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved, he could have just said your pastor, our beloved fellow servant. Oh, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Highland, pray for your pastors. Pray for the elders of Highland. Pray for your church staff. And pray for our city mayor. We can go outside just the spiritual context here and really step back and see our obligation as a church family to pray for all leaders who are above us. We can pray for our mayor, pray for our city manager, both of which are Highlanders, actually. When you see them, don't ask them about taxes and potholes and green spaces. <laughs> ask them how you can pray for them. Pray, pray for our senators in Texas. Pray for our president. I'm not asking if you voted for him or even support him. I am saying biblically, we have, we must pray for him. And yes, I said the same thing about Trump for those of y'all who are keeping score. I mean, is the economy struggling because Biden doesn't know what he's doing or the church isn't praying? Or both? Was, was Trump's tongue vile because he had no self-control or because the church wasn't praying? Or both? Are things bad at the border because of poor policy or because the church isn't praying? I'm not trying to take you off, necessarily. I am asking you, what is our contribution as a church toward our national leaders? Scripturally, we honor them by praying for them. There's a lot of talk about honor in the book of Colossians, and we're going to get to it. Husbands honoring their wives, wives honoring their husbands, children honoring your parents, employee honoring your boss, bosses honoring the staff. What you honor is what you love, and what you love is what you bless. What Paul is doing here, and I pray the Spirit of God would do the same within our church. He is building a culture, listen, of honor. We honor our leaders, and we honor one another, and ultimately we honor God by our lives and I love it and I'm here for it would you stand with me please Paul gives us some ways to pray Paul reminds us of, of this Christ who is exalted not just one more thing in our lives but the only thing in our lives not just one more thing to put on our plate he is life itself and if that Christ who is preeminent above all creation resides inside of us for those who are in Christ, of course there should be transformation in our relationships with others, our, our homes, our workplaces, our cities, our church. So this next song we're going to sing is really a prayer. 
And my hope is that this song kickstarts for us a week of growing in prayer. Now we have some theological insight of prayer. Now we have some, some practical things to hold on to, who we can be praying for this week and how we can pray this week. I, I hope deeply that this song we're about to sing, which is just a prayer, will ignite in our hearts a desire to seek the Lord in prayer this week. Let's sing as we pray. <laughs>